This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now on C-Suite Radio. We also now have our own iTunes show, so check us out. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back together with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we celebrate our first truly international Compliance Into the Weeds, as Matt is in London and I'm in Sao Paulo. So, Matt, in a very long wave, uh, hello from Sao Paulo. Uh, hello, Tom. I'm probably pretty envious of where you are with your weather. It is uh, it is not raining in London, but it is still rather cloudy and gray and sunset at, I think, 4.30 p.m. here. But here I am for the week. Very exciting. So what does sharp thinking about compliance doing in London? Uh, I am here at the invitation of Ernst & Young to give a talk at their Capital Markets Group, which I think is having a all-staff meeting, if I remember correctly, uh, where they were asking me to talk about uh, issues in corporate governance, uh, certainly from the U.S. perspective, but really for any large organization. So if the board is under these new pressures to do better at risk assurance and corporate governance, what does that therefore mean for risk and compliance executives who are there to help the board? That's what I'll be talking about tomorrow before a day and a half of sightseeing here. So Matt, um, last week you wrote a really interesting blog post about perhaps an even more interesting academic paper. I don't want to say it was counterintuitive, but uh, perhaps went in a direction that uh, we might not have originally considered. Uh, it is a publication by Dr. Kyle Welch of G George Washington and Stephen Steuben of the University of Utah. These are the same researchers who last year published a pioneering research demonstrating that more internal reporting correlates to better business outcomes overall. What did you find so interesting in this second paper? Yeah, so this is what um, Kyle and his cohorts published late last week. They looked at firsthand whistleblower reports where the person either is experiencing or somehow directly in contact with the misconduct versus secondhand whistleblower reports where the reporter hears about misconduct or sees it accidentally, but is not a direct participant in it. The difference between firsthand reports and secondhand reports, uh, where they found that first off, secondhand reports are 47.7% more likely to be substantiated by management than firsthand reports. Uh, and also secondhand reports, and we can get into this in a few minutes, but they have a very different trend in the issues that they're actually reporting. They're much more about accounting and business integrity, which is not the case for firsthand whistleblower reports. So Kyle and his um, cohorts there, his uh, colleagues, wanted to tease out these differences 
And uh, sure enough, they did find that there were some quite stark differences in the nature and reliability of first versus secondhand reports. So let's let's start with this rather stunning percentage, Matt, that uh, manage, uh, management is 47% more likely to substantiate allegations submitted in a secondhand report. Um, I, I guess it perhaps is not counterintuitive to, to understand that if it's a secondhand report, additional uh, verification or additional research or additional investigation would be required. But beyond that, uh, what kind of leads to this rather stunning finding? Well, th there's two sentences in their academic paper, which is readable for the most part, but it is academic East in some point. So prepare yourselves. If you do want to read it, it's only about 30 pages. It is readable, but um, if you're not an academic, there can be some heavy lifting in understanding it here and there. But one key paragraph, and I'll read it out. First-hand reports are more frequently made in person, more frequently involve reports of human resource issues, such as harassment and discrimination, and contain more detail about the reported event. By comparison, reports based on secondhand information are disproportionately reports of accounting and financial concerns and business integrity issues. Uh, they are also apparently a little bit less complete on the details. Um, but I think the key difference here is the nature of what people are reporting. And this is more my interpretation of the data, not necessarily their own interpretation. But I would say when you sit back and think about it, firsthand reports, well, of course, they're going to be more likely to be about HR issues because they are employees reporting something that has happened to them an abusive manager, a discrimination policy, or a policy that is discriminatory, uh, a coworker harassing them. If they are experiencing this, they know the details because they're living it. Um, conversely, if they are committing accounting fraud or they are somehow complicit in business integrity fraud of some kind, they might be less likely to admit that because they might have some liability issues they're worried about. But if you are a secondhand person, well, you know, you don't have any direct stake in um, any liability issues in reporting accounting fraud because you're not committing it. You just heard about it. Hey, some people are saying I heard some rumors over here. I found this uh, on the office photocopy machine. I think somebody should see it. Um, you kind of report that up the food chain. Um, these are less likely to be frivolous, whereas firsthand complaints are more likely to be frivolous because not only are you reporting the real HR issues, but you're reporting some of the kooky stuff. You know, there are going to be some nuts out there in your workforce who think that somebody is stealing their food or clipping their toenails in their cubicle, and they'll report that too. And those are classified as frivolous. Um, but if there's more frivolous complaints in the firsthand, and there are not that in the secondhand reports, then almost by definition, secondhand reports will be more reliable, but also like I would say secondhand reports are more, I don't want to say that they are, that firsthand reports should be overlooked, but there's a difference between an employee reporting something because it's happening to them and they want some sort of justice and reporter, uh, an employee reporting something that they have heard about, but they think something is amiss at the company that somebody should know about. And that strikes me as a very important distinction to keep in mind. And I think that's what this data tells us. So it, it almost sounds structural, Matt, that a first-person report will be something that happened to me 
whereas a secondhand report would be something that happened to the company. Would that be a, a fair assessment or did I really misunderstand? I might just shade it a little bit. Secondhand reports are about things that are happening at the company. Um, I suppose you could say the company is the victim, so it's happening to the company. Um, you know, but certainly if you are participating with your vice president in an FCPA violation, um, you know, think long and hard about well, you know, why would you actually self-report that because you might be exposing yourself to prosecution. Um, so people might be more reticent to speak up about that. Um, but if you witness or you hear about or you see evidence of an FCPA reporting scheme, it's very easy to gather up what you know and then pass it off to the board and say, this is something that might be happening. You guys are the ones who are in the senior offices. You deal with it. And that's what a secondhand report would look like. Um, I don't want to get too political with this podcast this week, but there are a lot of parallels between what we just described and what is happening in Washington with the whistleblower who spoke up about the uh, Ukraine scandal in the Trump administration, where that whistleblower wasn't in the room for President Trump's uh, quid pro quo call, which he has since pretty much admitted to, and then did it again publicly with China. Um, but, you know, the whistleblower didn't see that. The whistleblower had no direct knowledge of it. The whistleblower heard about it, saw that it lined up with some other news reports that he or she had also seen, and they gathered up a lot of indirect evidence, put it together into a very detailed whistleblower report, but that was a secondhand report about a business integrity issue in the political realm, but nonetheless, it was about a, a business integrity issue, and now the Board of Directors of the, the United States, which is otherwise known as Congress, it's their job to deal with it. Um, so there are a lot of parallels between what we're seeing in Washington right now with this Ukraine whistleblower and what this data that uh, George Washington University has dug up, parsing out the differences between direct and indirect uh, reports. Matt, would it be fair that, that we could draw some conclusions from this data on how a company needs to be prepared to deal with different types, first or secondhand whistleblower reports. So for instance, if a firsthand whistleblower report is by someone who some something has happened to, something has been done to them, um, or something that they have personally ob observed or seen, uh, it seems to me that that is both a triage exercise and an investigative exercise of a quality different than someone who says, I heard something, you need to go investigate the data. Uh, could we draw those conclusions? Well, I, I would maybe tease out a couple of differences. I think it's important to grasp that a person who is a firsthand whistleblower reporting some sort of HR issue, presumably he or she somehow feels aggrieved and they're looking for justice and they're expecting something. And if the uh, abuse that they are reporting is severe enough, they might therefore decide that they have some sort of a claim against the company. And if you don't respond to it, they might take that claim and pursue it through outside channels, might go to an EEOC complaint, might go to a discrimination lawsuit or something like that. Um, but you know, they, they have a motivation for getting something back. They have been wrong, they want to be made whole, and that can be a very powerful thing. Um, on the other hand, the person filing a secondhand report, maybe about business integrity or accounting, you know, they personally, they suffered no wrong. They 
don't necessarily have any claim to liability, they can't file a lawsuit uh, on the government's behalf for the FCPA, although they could for the False Claims Act and maybe some other circumstances. But fundamentally, it's a different sort of issue and they don't necessarily have a fire lit under their rear end that I want justice. They're more thinking something's wrong at this company. The senior officers should know about it and deal with it. Let me bring it to them. And then, of course, if you ignore that, it could come out that uh, much later on, they hand that whistleblower complaint to the Justice Department or the SEC. And now it might come out that the company knew it had an issue and turned a blind eye. You're still up the creek. And um, you know, you, I suspect you're gonna have different investigation protocols depending on if it's an HR issue that somebody feels they've been slighted versus a business integrity issue where some employee is just trying to do the company a favor and tip you off to something that might be amiss. You respond to those things differently, but I think it's well worth appreciating the, the motivations and where the potential liabilities lie for each one. Matt, it also strikes me that perhaps compliance officers or persons in the legal department or whoever's making the decision around both the investigation, uh, triage investigation and the end of the day determination of uh, any such whistleblower complaints may need to, if not be trained on, certainly think about confirmation bias if they, uh, the numbers would substantiate that secondhand reports are 47.7% um, more likely to be substantiated uh, than firsthand reports. You know, that's a good point. Um, also worth noting that, as we said, the first-hand reports tend to include more detail, the second-hand reports less. So while they might be substantiated or substantiatable, um, you're going to have to work harder to get to that. So you do need to be on point. And I think, you know, what sticks out in my mind isn't necessarily a confirmation bias um, in favor of uh, an allegation here, but more like you need training to make sure that everybody involved at the senior levels, like, they understand that there's, I guess, maybe a non-confirmation bias or something. Like we're seeing this in Washington right now that Republicans are obsessed over who is this whistleblower? Why can't we question them? Why should we question them? What should we talk about? And the appropriate answer to all of that is who cares? The whistleblower did us a favor. The whistleblower reported the potential commission of a crime, which the president has since confessed to on the White House lawn anyways. Um, if you're the board of directors and you get an anonymous complaint that says the CEO is committing misconduct, you don't necessarily worry about where did this complaint come from? What is the whistleblower's beef? The first thing to do is to figure out, does the CEO, did, did he or she do it or not? And if they did, we have to respond to that. You know, So we see a lot of the Republicans in Congress walking around with their heads in the sand and pardon me for that kind of screwy metaphor, but I mean, they're clearly ignoring how you should handle a whistleblower complaint of this nature, which is to take the complaint on its merits, who cares about the whistleblower, don't get to that until you ascertain the facts, which I mean, for most of what the whistleblower said, those facts have been ascertained and copped to by the president anyway. So guys, move on with your job, please. So uh, I guess there's really a lot uh, to unpack here. And, and I started off saying it's perhaps counterintuitive. I think I'm still in that position as we uh, near the end of this podcast, Matt, but it does strike me that this is not only valuable, but important information 
and every compliance practitioner or legal department needs to think about when they not only design their reporting system, but how they intake uh, reports as well. You know, I agree with all of that. I would even say it is important just to keep this basic dynamic in your head and perhaps do some training or discussion with the board in case you ever do wind up in this situation where you might have some members of the board trying to attack the whistleblower and point out to them, no, if we have a secondhand report like this, it is much more likely to be true than the firsthand report. We probably have a problem on our hands. Chasing a whistleblower is not a productive use of the board's time, nor the compliance officers, so let's not do it. I mean, that message should be drilled into audit committees and board directors' heads. Um, and is it counterintuitive or not? The way I think of it is like with a lot of this whistleblower data that uh, Kyle Welch and his colleagues are turning out, it's counterintuitive until you sit down and think about it for a minute and you say, well, yeah, it, it kind of does make sense that, um, you know, look, we all want to speak up about harassment if we see it happening to somebody else. But we're much more likely to uh, speak up about it if we see it happening to us less likely if we do see it happen to a third party. So Matt, unfortunately we're near the end of our time, but uh, this has been a fascinating exploration of a very interesting topic and our first international compliance into the weeds. So I look forward to, to doing a domestic episode next week. All right, Tom, take care. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds as Matt and I celebrate our first truly international episode. I've linked to Matt's uh, blog post in the show notes uh, together with uh, the report from a rather academic paper from Drs. Welch and Steuben. Uh, read both. Uh, you will learn a lot of information. Matt can be reached at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you will join us again. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.